Welcome to Union Money. I'm Brian Hurst. This evening, we are focusing on healthcare. The financial pressures faced by many South Africans has resulted in a move from satisfying luxury needs to sustaining more basic essentials. One of the major monthly expenses facing consumers is the cost of their healthcare program. The dilemma that many face is how to strike the right balance between easy access to quality health and affordability. And joining me this evening, I'm delighted to have back on the program, Clayton Samsudin, who's Managing Director of Genesis EB Solutions. Clayton, good to see you and welcome back to the program. Clayton, is this a fact in healthcare that members are actually looking for ways to save and therefore maybe taking irresponsible decisions about downgrading? Well, firstly, Brian, um, we, uh, we haven't really seen a major downgrade, uh, particularly in our book of business. So uh, members are continually to upgrade. But I think in the private healthcare industry, it's remained at around 8.8 .8 million people that's been covered. So, you know, we don't see that kind of step up of people moving from wanting to have private healthcare. Uh, so it's it's kind of issue of if it's not compulsory by your employer or if you don't need healthcare benefits that you don't join a medical scheme. I mean, when you think about it, this is the time of the year that we hear the rate increases. Mm. And we're talking about inflation, CPI around about 5, 5.2%. Mm. And yet I understand medical aids, again, are forced to increase their premiums and contributions a lot more than just the inflation level, inflation plus. What sort of increases are you seeing? Let's first talk about the two big schemes, Discovery mm. and Siswick. Mm. So CISW is not a large scheme, but uh, they came in at around 6.1%, uh, the headline. Oh, increase. sorry, the other one is Benitas. Correct, yeah. Discovery um, in Benitas. Yeah, they're averaging at around 85 9.2%. Um, the average in the market is around 9% among the schemes that we are contracted to. Um, but I have to say, I mean, the, the healthcare inflation is around between 112 and 12.2%. Um, and we had the VAT increase of 1%. Uh, that's adding around 16 billion to, to the claims. Uh, uh, so, you know, I think medical schemes are performing really well considering we had the 1% VAT increase. Healthcare inflation is uh, between 11.2 and 12.2. So to come in at 9% on average, I think it's a really good performance and, and we should be, be really grateful for where we are. So then how does one company come in at 6.1% and another, I understand, as much as 14%? Yeah, well, Firstly, I think um, they just got it wrong in terms of um, the actuarial ca calculations. And perhaps, you know, it's a bit of irresponsibility in terms of the risk that they take on. So, um, you know, we kind of avoid uh, certain medical schemes that would take on risk, uh, meaning they accept employers or members that are of high risk um, without waiting periods, without late joint penalties. That's kind of an irresponsible manner of accepting members. And when you do that, uh, members tend to burn you later on in terms of the claims patterns and so forth and, and you have no other alternative but to raise um, the contributions by that high percentage. Clayton, I mean I, I spoke about mem employees being stretched and if you think about, you talked about the 1% VAT increase, mm. we've seen the RAND fall, we've seen the petrol price go up, we've seen food prices going up. Uh, the one thing that hasn't gone up yet is debt. Debt costs people and I mean, 80% of the African working force have got debt. If you, I mean, if you can't buy a home or a car or furniture, you want to buy a fridge or stove, you're going to have to take terms. And, 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 and it's ludicrous. I don't think many people realise the charges added to paying cash for a fridge versus paying it off. Mm. Now, if we are faced, our Reserve Bank are faced with pushing up in, in rates 
Do you think that ultimately has got to come back and give members a different perspective of where else can they cut back? I mean, everyone has cut back wherever they could. Mm. Well, interestingly enough, you know, we always see that healthcare is the last sort of element in your expenses that is cut. So members are first going to, you know, try and cut their life assurance expenditure, their short-term insurance expenditure. Uh, they may even try to cut back on other types of expenditure, but healthcare is the last one they touch. So, um, you know, because that unfortunately is a, it's an emotive thing, you know, particularly those that, have, that are married with children. You know, you really don't want to see uh, your children in, in a, a state hospital and that sort of thing. So we kind of see members buying up more than, than downgrading. That has been the trend so far. Um, in the last uh, 10 years or so, that's what we've seen. Um, and, you know, I'll be able to only tell by 30th of November if, if that's the same trend going into 2019. Um, so far, we haven't really seen a huge downgrade. Um, but, you know, I think, think members are really being a lot more cautious about uh, the options for next year. I want to talk a little bit more on the increases because I want to know on the other side of the equation, have some benefits been removed? Have some uh, uh, co-op payments been increased? We'll deal that with when we come back. We're going to take a break. Our program tonight is not live, so we won't be taking calls. You can still email me on brianh at bhca.coza. Stay tuned. I'll be back shortly. Welcome back to New Money this evening. We're discussing healthcare. My guest, Clayton Samsudin, will not be taking calls this evening, but you can still email me on brianh at bhca.co.za. Clayton, before I start taking emails, we spoke about increases around about 85 to 9%, but I always think very much sometimes you get the increases, but all of a sudden there's up there, there, there are a whole lot of other payments that members are responsible for. Has there been any, have you seen the actual makeup of the, other than the premium increases, the makeup of 2019 medical aids? Yeah, so um, with the, it's not just the increases, so it's a whole redesign of benefit structures on most of the options of medical schemes. And there's an increasing trend towards um, network providers and more so designated service providers, shortly named as DSPs. So what I'm saying is that medical scheme members are increasingly having less choice. So, you know, in order to get this industry sustainable, there's this move to, from a freedom of choice environment to less freedom of choice, more networks, uh, meaning that you can only obtain your one medication from certain pharmacy groups, you can only visit certain hospital groups, visit certain GPs within a network, um, and that just becomes very restrictive. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned going into next year because um, if I look at certain of the plan types that members have selected and that they are on, you know, if they're going into 2019 and not paying attention to the, the new benefit designs, um, they unfortunately will come short. So, you know, ourselves as, as, as a healthcare consulting company, we're going to great lengths to educate our members to ensure that they are aware of the changes coming next year. Um, you could land up with a 20% co-payment and even non-payment for certain health services if obtained from a non-network provider. So, so let's talk about it, because so many people on medical aid do not have a broker. 
Hmm. Corporate, they probably do have a broker like yourselves. Yeah. You look after them, but individuals. So they're not getting advice. Hmm. At the moment, the medical aid companies can pay. There's a commission built in to the premium, whether yeah. you use it or not. Yes. There was talk by the regulator saying, I want to do away with commissions. If they do that, where is the advice going to come from? Yeah, I think that, um, look, uh, uh, that, that's a bit of a touchy subject. I don't think it was doing away with it. It was regulating it in a different manner. Because at the moment, you're absolutely right, there are millions of members that are paying this fee, 3% to a maximum of 90 rand, receiving no value. We're in support of that. We're in support that members must receive value for what they're paying for. But um, we're also in support of that members must have the choice as to whether they want to pay this fee or not not just being deducted and from their benefit and not receiving any advice for it. So, you know, I think that's the mechanism that we're going to. And, and I think it opens the door uh, for, you know, consultants, I'd hate to say it, but, you know, possibly to, to charge a higher rate if they are adding more value to the member than simply being able to receive the 90 rand. So, Clayton, if your organisation mm. tomorrow starts getting hundreds of calls around the country, mm -hmm. are you able to handle it? Yeah, absolutely. You've got enough credited healthcare consultants absolutely. you can actually handle and advise people, this is the plan you're on, this is what you've got to look. So then let's come back to what you talk about networks. Mm -hmm. What do you call them? DSPs? Designated service De providers. Okay. Yeah. What percentage of doctors and hospitals are now part of this DSP and network system? So it is becoming a complicated scenario between medical schemes. So you have the general sort of network to which the majority of GPs are contracted to. Then you have preferred provider networks, meaning they have a different sort of rate of reimbursement model. And on certain plan types, you can only go to those preferred provider networks. Otherwise, it means you'd have another sort of co-payment or deductible that you have to pay in. So members really need to know their plan types very well and need to know uh, their networks very well. The, the, the unfortunate scenario would be they'll sit with higher co-payments next year. Because there's such a shortage of specialists today. I mean, if you really want to get an appointment, unless you've got connection, you can wait two, three, four months. Mm. So if you now have to rely on these designated providers... Are you going to be able to? Are you, are you going to be waiting months, or is there an arrangement when you become this that you actually will find time to see new patients? Okay, so I'm going to try and give you the short answer. <laughs> okay. So we have GPs in a network, then we have GPs in a, a preferred provider network setting, then we have pharmacies that's also designated service providers. We have hospitals in a network provider setting, then we have specialists in a network provider setting. That's what you're referring to. So some of them are just not contracted at all. And of course, that's where you're going to pay up front and claim back and, you, and you'll only get the portion reimbursed by, that the scheme would pay. And then there are those that you could obtain from uh, the medical schemes website. So, you know, some of the medical schemes are well advanced in terms of guiding you to a specialist that they would reimburse in full. Well, they help you get appointments. Correct, yeah. Good. Well, let's start, take, let's start taking a few emails. Serena in Queensland says, I've only got a hospital plan because I feel I can handle my out-of-hospital expenses. Am I taking a short-sighted view? Let's assume she's a healthy lady. Yeah, well, I don't think so because uh, she's protected by 
the medical schemes act uh, with regards to prescribed minimum benefits, otherwise known as PMBs. So that means although on a hospital plan medical scheme, she has access to 27 uh, benefits for 27 chronic conditions that could be of assistance for, from a day-to-day -day point of view, as well as 270 treatment pairs should she require um, sort of uh, emergency or other health uh, conditions covered by this, this 271 conditions. So, um, you know, I always kind of um, use this rule of thumb, you know, that uh, if you were to go to a plan and you kind of calculate for yourself, you, you know, if you kind of can fund between 15 and, and 20,000 rand out of your pocket, then perhaps, you know, you could survive on, on a hospital plan only. But I think the minute we start claiming above 20,000 rand, per annum, then we should start looking at a day-to-day -day plan. Although you never know what the future holds. Absolutely. But correct. of your contribution, 20, only up to 25% maximum can go into a savings account. Correct, yeah. So you can do your calculations yourself. The advantage yeah. is that if day one of the year, if you have a major ailment, the, the, the medical aid will pay it. Whereas if you're funding it yourself, correct. you've got to find that money. Correct. Richard Kempton Park says, what can we as employers do to help employees stretch their medical aid benefits? Yeah, so, you know, employers, I think, uh, and employees, you know, it's a kind of joint venture between the two, you know, there, there has to be a healthcare strategy in terms of uh, improving the health and wellness of employees. Now, uh, with many medical schemes, the clinical data that's provided, uh, you could easily segment employees between those that are healthy, those that are um, healthy, uh, diseased, low severity, and you can develop programs to improve the health status. And the moment you do that, uh, the simple answer is, is that you sit with more healthier employees that claim less. And the minute you start claiming less, it means you need less benefit, and less benefit equates to less contribution to the medical scheme. And less absent employees from work. Absolutely correct. So you find that those that are transient, meaning between healthy and, the, and ill health are actually the high claimers. They're the people that claim the most, that have the most uh, sort of erratic behavior in terms of uh, being hospitalized, days of sick, um, chronic registrations and so forth. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking healthcare this evening. Stay tuned. I'll be back shortly. Welcome back, and if you just joined the program, we are focusing on healthcare this evening. My guest is Clayton Samsudin. We'll not be taking calls this evening, but you can still email me at brianh at bhca.co.za. Email from Penny in Jansburg says, are there any other health insurance products that I consider that are more affordable than a full medical aid? Yes, so one uh, April 2017, the demarcation, final demarcation regulations came into to be. So that made provision for primary health care products, previously known as medical insurance. So the name changed completely. And primary health care products um, doesn't fall under the Medical Schemes Act in terms of what it needs to provide uh, from a prescribed minimum benefit point of view. Short answer is they can strip out the hospital benefits, so you can only buy day-to-day -day if you want, or you can only buy a hospital cover if you want uh, with stated benefits, or you can combine the two. 
the result is that you sit with a primary healthcare benefit that could come in at around 170, 180 rand per individual, per adult, and dependent on the plan type from there it kind of goes on. So those products are now legal, they're protected by, uh, uh, consumers are protected by the uh, Council for Medical Schemes, um, and we hope to see within the next year or so more development in terms of low-cost benefit options, um, but they do exist. And, and there is massive take-up in that market, uh, the primary healthcare market. Well, this is a good time to ask it. Lyndon Sunninghill says, how will NH be funded? Who's going to pay for it? And is it correct that private medical aids are going to be banned? Yeah, so NHI, we're now in phase two. Um, and yes, um, we're going to pay for it. It's either going to be a payroll tax or another percentage increase in VAT, probably one 1.5% increase in VAT. Um, and uh, we're also going to lose our medical scheme fees tax credit in the process. So yes, we're going to pay for it. Um, I'd argue that, just as a sidebar, that we already have universal cover. The state's paying for those who can't pay for themselves, and we that can pay, we're paying for ourselves via private health care. And uh, as the NHI progresses in terms of its coverage, uh, slowly medical schemes will kind of reduce in what it, it does provide. But eventually you will have a a public-private partnership, um, and medical schemes will, it will provide a top-up cover to what NHI provides. So do you think everyone will be forced to join an NHI scheme, yeah. irrespective of whether you've got a medical aid or not? Yep, you're going to contribute to it because you'll be contributing it via a payroll tax or VAT somehow. Um, so the services that you're going to be paying for, um, from what I gather, uh, and what uh, we've been told is that you, medical schemes cannot duplicate those essential benefits that will be provided by NHI. But the, but the com this comments about and this question, will private medical aid fall away? I can't see that happening. Why destroy something that's working, even for a small percentage of the country, add to it rather than destroy it? Yeah. So you can still have your membership. You may be forced to be a member of NHI, mm. but at least it opens to so many people who don't have any healthcare cover yep. the opportunity to get it. Because in the rural areas, you can't have babies dying that can't get onto incubators. Mm. You just can't have it. It's got to be more universal. But the most important thing is people are saying, I still want to, and globally, people are members of scheme. You look about the UK, members are, are, are and they still got private health care. Yeah, uh, th that's what I'm saying. You know, we will always have, uh, I believe that private health care would be a top up to what NHI provides. Um, but we are a long, long, long way um, from achieving that. You know, we need to find 256 billion, um, and we are a long way from achieving that. Uh, Jonathan Northwell says, please explain prescribed minimum benefits. Every time I claim, which seems to be for normal out-of-hospital benefits, I'm told it's not covered. Now, there was an article last week mm. about this. Maybe deal with that? Yeah, so prescribed minimum benefits, there's two elements to it. The one is your chronic conditions, which must be covered by a medical scheme in full for 12 months, um, and there's 27 of those conditions. Then there's 271 treatment pairs, and then there are a number of other issues, like let's call a simple thing an emergency, a life-threatening situation, um, the possibility of losing a limb. You know, that must be covered by a medical scheme in full um, and at, at a designated service provider. Now, what is happening is that the, these claims that are being received by medical schemes are deemed to be prescribed minimum benefit claims, but is not being paid in full by medical schemes. We now see a situation where there's been an increase of complaints to the Council for Medical Schemes saying that 
medical schemes are not paying these claims in full and therefore this investigation is taking place um, and there isn't a final outcome as yet other than the schemes are, 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 are cooperating with, with the regulator. So um, that's where we are at the moment, but this is an ongoing scenario. Um, but I can, I can say that there has been an increase, a definite increase in complaints about what is deemed to be prescribed minimum benefit claims that are not being paid in full by medical schemes. Lewis and Emmerich says, and I, I know this is a difficult one, this is a program on its own, he says, I understand that doctors are paying an enormous premium for PI cover, professional indemnity cover. Why aren't these premiums cross-subsidised between all medi medical practitioners rather than each specialist? Wouldn't this bring down the cost of healthcare? I mean, if you look about it, I mean, I have a client who's a gynaecologist, obstetrics. He's paying a million rand a year to protect himself from claims for negligent claims or claims where things have gone wrong. Hmm. And then you've got a general practitioner who pays a lot more. So obviously, depending on the, the severity and the difficulty in terms of what side of medicine you're on. But have you got any idea? Because that, that must contribute to doctor's costs and ultimately what the patient's going to pay and what the medical aid is going to pay the doctors. Yeah. So, you know, what we have is this rate of reimbursement that's determined by the medical scheme. So they pay a specific rate for... Um, a GP visit, a specialist visit, and so forth. And we've got to understand that, you know, these um, private practitioners, they, they're running a business, and, you know, the insurance that they need to pay is, is an expense for them. So, you know, clearly, you know, it, it's going to mean they're going to have to charge patients a higher rate. So, you know, there's a transfer of this cost of the expense from one to the other. And that could be the reason why um, we have the scenario where they're charging the higher rates than, than what medical schemes are prepared to reimburse. Well, Devon in Linksville says, how much pressure does fraud play on the medical aid system and what does it contribute to the cost of, of our medical aid? Well, it's estimated that fraud and wasteful claims is around between 10 and 15 percent. Um, you know, it was, I've seen an article where they've estimated that to add around 22 billion to our current claims, um, and that is, is a high percentage. You know, if we can rid the, the fraud out of the system, uh, you can imagine if we can reduce our, our claims ratio by 15%, we'll sit with a much less uh, annual increase uh, each year. Clayton, we, we haven't got to all the emails, and I must apologise to our viewers for that, but I'm going to bring you back because I think there's a lot to be done still for members of medical aids before the end of the year. One of the prime issues raised in our healthcare slot has been the importance of members understanding their benefits and a full appreciation as to whether they're in the right plan or not. Even if your cover seems adequate, there's no harm in evaluating how effective your scheme is and then comparing this with other options which may be more cost effective or provide wider cover. Not all the medical schemes have released their increase for 2019, but we have been advised that the ranges between 6.1 and 14.3, but averages around about 9%. It's at the time of this year when one needs to consider one's cover. I suggest that you use a properly qualified broker to assist with this investigation. Clayton, thank you for joining me this evening. It's important to note our program is to provide information and should not be construed as advice. Next week's program, we'll be back focusing on investments. You need to get hold of me. My details will appear on the screen. I'd like to thank you for watching and good night.